Today's topic is concentrated stock. Now, Joe, I know you work with a handful of clients that have concentrated stock within their portfolio, so that'd be a good time to sit down and talk through more around how you've helped clients with these types of situations. Yeah, absolutely, Jason. Uh, we have dealt with these uh, situations, and maybe up front, maybe the, the best thing to define is what we would consider a concentrated stock position in a client's portfolio. Mm -hmm. And traditionally, that would be anytime there's at least 10% of a client's investable net worth in a single security. Now, based on circumstances, uh, for example, if someone isn't going to be drawing down their assets in retirement and don't really need the wealth, maybe we would allow that concentrated position to be a little bit higher. Uh, but traditionally, 10% is kind of a, a threshold that we would consider a concentrated stock position. Okay. And then how does someone typically come across a concentrated stock? Like, how does that develop over time? I know people don't wake up one day and say, here it is, it's 10% of my portfolio. How does that develop? Yeah, so there's usually two different scenarios that lead to a concentrated position. Uh, the first example is someone just by good fortune uh, happens to purchase a specific security, uh, a specific quantity that the stock just grows by leaps and bounds over time. And that's what everybody wants. I mean, that's, what, <laughs> that's the ideal scenario when it comes to investing. <laughs> the other scenario is where we see clients that work for their employer for a long duration and as they work their way up the corporate ladder, part of their total compensation includes mm. equity awards. And so every year they're granted uh, stock options and so over many years that can become a concentrated position based on their equity awards. Okay, got it. So then let's kind of shift a little bit to what are some of the issues or kind of situations you come across where somebody does have a concentrated stock? Right? What are some of those discussions like around um, Number one is discovery, but then also two, perhaps, just kind of what are, what are some of those issues that are faced? Yeah, yeah, so great question. So one of the underlying concerns or problems, if you will, around a concentrated position, regardless of how it became a concentrated position, a couple things. First and foremost, uh, we've got an elevated level of business risk in the concentrated position itself which means our overall asset allocation or portfolio diversification is lacking. And so the concern is that if there is a less than desirable event at this particular company and now the stock falters, now the client is overly exposed to this adverse consequence of the stock you know, dropping in value perhaps materially. Mm -hmm. And so the benefit of diversification is that it dilutes the individual activity of an underlying security. And so that's one of the problems. The other problem is potentially the inability for us to quickly and easily sell out of the position because of underlying tax issues. Mm. Uh, it'd be one thing if a concentrated position was held in a tax-qualified account. Uh, there's no tax consequences in that account. We can just wind down from that security quickly and easily and redeploy those proceeds according to the investment policy that we think is appropriate. Uh, more times than not, though, these concentrated stock positions are in taxable accounts, mm. and anytime we're harvesting those shares, uh, there is tax consequences behind that. So that's the other problem, is that we can't easily wind down from the security without undesirable tax consequences. Yeah, and in a case where if you have a large position and a large unrealized gain, right, that, that could lead to a large tax bill, right, if you have to sell it all. Absolutely, and so there are multiple ways or solutions, if you will, that working with us that we can come up with for our clients, depending on the underlying circumstance. And so 
if we use the first example, uh, let's just use the name Alice. Alice is someone that uh, just by good fortune invested in a particular security that grew by leaps and bounds and now here she is. She's got a large concentrated position in a taxable account. Um, depending on what her overall financial goals and objectives are, if we determine that yes, we want to trim from this security, uh, there's a couple ways that we can mitigate the tax consequences. So first and foremost, one of the strategies that we would look to employ would be spreading out the duration over multiple years mm -hmm. that we're winding down from the security. So now instead of realizing a taxable event in one single year, we're spreading it out over multiple years. And again, depending on the unrealized gain and the size of the concentrated position would determine you know, how many years it may be appropriate to spread that liquidation out over. Now, one thing that we have done uh, in ex uh, specific client examples is we've done a combination of selling from the stock, but also making large charitable donations that year. Mm. So whether it's an outright gift to a single organization or perhaps the use of a donor-advised fund. And so a client is able to utilize, uh, at the time of making a gift, the fair market value of the stock is what qualifies as the gift amount. And a client can deduct up to 30% of their adjusted gross income the year that they make that donation. So what we've done in some client instances in the past is we've done a combination of strategies where we will trim from the stock but also make a donor-advised fund or a gift to charity that same year hmm. that can be used to offset some of the tax consequences of those gains that we harvested. When you spread it across tax years, how many tax years are you talking? Are you, is it a couple? Can it be... Yeah, again, it's circumstantial. Um, I would say at minimum, we're usually looking to take advantage of a couple of calendar years to spread the tax consequences, but it could be, I mean, again, depending on the size of the unrealized gain, it might make sense to spread it out over three years or more, perhaps. Mm -hmm. And so, again, there's circumstances, you know, other things that we would take into consideration is, are there any underlying factors within the company itself mm. that would warrant us to maybe act sooner rather than later? Um, using our research capabilities, uh, we will review, are there any underlying factors at play? Are there you know, poor earnings guidance? Is there changes in leadership in the company? Um, you know, those types of things would be things that we'd be looking at to determine, you know, is there anything company specific that would warrant us to maybe act sooner uh, to trim down from that security than not. Sure. So on that point too, then if you as you think about and pl create plans for clients that have concentrated stock, do you have a different decision set when it comes to the type, like the size of the company? So let's pick on maybe Target for example, larger company yeah. versus some smaller publicly com traded company, but you know, much smaller presence, perhaps more evolved. Do you, do you have a different decision set around that? I, I think so. And again, it's, it's utilizing all of our internal resources. And so that's where we would collaborate internally with our portfolio management group and our research capabilities. But yes, uh, if it's a large blue chip company stock like a Target, we would anticipate that that's going to be able to weather more volatility in the financial markets as opposed to a mid-cap or small-cap stock that might be more susceptible to economic cycles or market downturns. Mm -hmm. And so in the instance where we're owning a large company stock, a large blue-chip staple, we'd be more inclined to be patient gradually trimming from that security as opposed to um, the alternative we may be a little bit more hard-pressed to uh, wind down from it sooner. Got it. So that, the scenario of Alice where she invested in a stock and it, you know, it, it 
grows exponentially and she gets this con she has this concentrated position. We talked about that. You mentioned another scenario where a um, client came across or accumulated a concentrated position. Can you talk a little bit about that one? Yeah, so let's say alternatively, Bob in this instance has worked for his employer for many years and as he works his way up the corporate ladder, part of his total compensation includes equity awards. And so now Bob, over many years of working from this employer and accumulating numerous years of stock grants, now as he's approaching retirement, he's accumulated years and years of stock grants and now he's got a large concentrated position based on many individual stock grants that he accumulated over time. And so in that instance, now, uh, what, now the strategy, because now we've got multiple lots and different cost basis across those lots, um, now there's a potential solution where now we might be able to, you know, based on the client's overall situation, if Bob is looking to enter retirement and we have some concerns around the concentrated stock position, now we can look for those high cost basis lots as a, as a quick entry or, or an easy exit of some of those lots where we're not going to be subjected to mm -hmm. as adverse tax consequences as maybe some of those low cost basis lots. And so as we're making that transition into retirement where we want to dilute that concentrated stock position but not subject them to adverse tax consequences, that's an avenue. And so where we've used that strategy where, again, we're just doing a deep dive into understanding the different lots that made up that concentrated stock position in addition to the other strategies that I mentioned with Alice where we can spread out the other lots over numerous calendar years to wind down the position over time. Sure. As well as in some circumstances, you can even have some tax lots that have an unrealized loss. So you could even unwind it for you know, perhaps no tax costs if it's under the certain circumstances. Precisely. And again, that's just to make that's that's our job as a fiduciary to make sure that we're doing a deep dive and making sure that mm -hmm. we understand what is the nature of the underlying concentrated stock position, what's the makeup of all these individual grants, what's the time horizon remaining on those grants, and how does it tie to the overall financial situation of the uh, of Bob's situation using his example. Yeah, I know there's oftentimes there's financial constraints, um, taxes around how we can make decisions and work with clients with concentrated stock. Let's talk a little bit about the behavioral side of it. Sometimes folks will get to retirement, they have a concentrated position like Bob worked for a company his whole life. Um, what, do you, what are the situations you come across where someone may have a behavioral kind of a sentimental attachment and does that, does that weigh in the decision making at all? It absolutely does. Uh, at the end of the day, this is our client's wealth and we will answer to them. But uh, using our Sojourn Wealth Planning process, it is a behavioral tool and it helps frame for our clients a big picture outlook of retirement for them. And it's just having that conversation and helping them understand, okay, well, what, how does this concentrated position tie to your overall long-term retirement outlook? Is this money that you do need to draw from in retirement mm -hmm. or not? I mean, and again, that's where there's some flexibility on if somebody isn't expecting to draw down this, there might be a portion of that concentrated stock position for estate planning purposes. It might make sense for them to hold on to that and pass with it so that that position receives a full step up in basis mm -hmm. in some of those shares. If it's somebody that is going to rely on this income in and throughout retirement, it's helping our clients understand and develop that framework. What are your short-term needs early in retirement? What are intermediate-term needs and long-term needs? And from there, that kind of creates the foundation of, okay, yeah, so I am going to have to spend some, down some of the stock. Even though I have an emotional attachment to it, 
in the grand scheme of things, my larger and even greater concern is making sure I don't outlive my assets in and throughout retirement. And by keeping a larger portion of this concentrated position than I should, might actually leave me exposed to greater business risk than what makes sense for my overall retirement plan. For those that aren't familiar with put options or option strategies, these are effectively uh, ways to buy insurance or put insurance on a portfolio, right? You pay a premium to help protect from some uh, adverse outcome in the future. Um, so both in terms of not being able to predict the future on stock prices and we can't predict the future on taxes, how do we think about that over time? Yeah, that's another great point. Uh, again, something that we can't necessarily predict. And so the best way that we can mitigate that, if you will, is to operate off of what we know today. And so often what we will do with our clients in these circumstances is we will collaborate with our client and also their accountant. And working with their accountant, we can determine, you know, what is a certain threshold of income taxes that the client is comfortable going up to? And we'll do our best to then essentially execute the strategy so that we get as close to that taxable threshold without exceeding it in a given year. And it is, it is just a little bit of a wait and see. But right now, at least, that's our primary focus is to operate off of what we know to be certain today. This is the amount of taxes that we can pay now. And what are you most comfortable with? And, and then we just, you know, one year at a time. And, and often, it, to expand on that too, depending on the time of the year that, you know, a client comes to us or the, the issue is at hand, um, you know, if we're dealing with something that if it's, it's relatively early in our onboarding process and it's, you know, in the fall, for example, it's pretty easy to spread something out over a couple of tax years mm. because we're only talking a matter of months. Mm -hmm. So we might take step one sometime in the fall, maybe in fourth quarter, depending on the timing. Mm -hmm. And then come January, just a few months later, well, we've got a new calendar year where we can take step two relatively quickly. And so that's so there's multiple things that you don't necessarily think of on the surface that these are all things that we're taking into consideration. And again, it's just uh, making sure that we have a full understanding of the client's situation and circumstances and how everything ties together in the grand scheme of things. Do you find that with clients you work with that are still working for those employers, um, do you find that it's common to be selling stock along the way? as you're accumulating stock, or is it more common that people just hold it with the intent that I'll sell in the future when I retire? Yeah, great question. You know, I think there's a little bit of a, a, a across the board, but it does seem that more times than not that the folks that we come across, there isn't regular selling from those lots. So using that example, again, similar to Bob, where he works for an employer for many years, mm -hmm. it, it does just seem that more times than not, clients seem to just accumulate more shares over time and that's what leads to that concentrated stock position concern. Yeah, and a lot of times it's been, if it's been working for a long time too, it's like why change it? But as, as you said before too, right, the, when you're in the distribution phase, it's different than the accumulation phase. Absolutely, and, and again, from a behavioral side, you know, if something has always worked in the past, you, you create that false sense of security where now I become emotionally attached mm. because it has always worked out well for me in the past. And as a devil's advocate, we would try to help clients understand that, yes, but now you have this degree of business risk. And we've seen those examples where something can change 
and now you are overexposed and susceptible to material loss right on the cusp of retirement. And so that is absolutely something that we would say from our positioning that you can never be wrong trimming from a position when it's at an all-time high or near an all-time high. Mm -hmm. And so again, our strategy is usually spreading that we're trimming the security over time. It's usually never going to be in a lump sum because of adverse tax consequences. Yeah. Joe, when you come across these situations for the first time, like a new client, how long does it take to either uncover or do the discovery and help put a plan together for someone that's got to concentrate stock? Yeah, great question. Our, our typical onboarding process, we have our initial consultation where we go through and try to gain as much of an understanding about the critical issues or concerns for the underlying household. And then from there, we're just talking days or weeks to come with a solution to the underlying issue. We're not talking a long-term time horizon. Great. Joe, this has been great having you here for this discussion. If somebody has questions on this topic, what's the best way to go hold of you? I really enjoyed it, Jason. You can find me by going to our Vector website and looking me up on our team page.